Okay, so welcome back to another, um, man, again, I forgot to come up with an awesome adjective to oversell the show. Well, it's a good thing I'm here, Kevin, because <laughs> yeah, it is. I got I got you covered. Welcome to another stupefying episode <laughs> of VA Radio, ladies and gentlemen. Stupefying. Yes, yes. Largely at my desk, I will be... Uh, <laughs> I am currently stupefied, so that's that's <laughs> it's accurate. Nobody can say that we're misleading them. Exactly. Yeah, well, right stupefy on. means to amaze or to you know be awesome. So, well, then I might have been misunderstanding my definition of stupefy. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> so then we are lying to them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was just trying to steal IQ points from everybody, you know. But what are you going to do? <laughs> Right. right. So uh, awesome. There is a lot, so much going on. It's been uh, a little while since we did our last episode. We have a lot to yeah. catch up on. This is going to be a, uh, a stupefying show to say the least, I would, yes. I would think. Absolutely. Uh, um, and uh, before we uh, get rocking and rolling, we like to do a trivia question, which uh, usually is automotive related. And last time, if I'm not mistaken, you got it right. I did get it right for the, the first time. I got it right, so I'm looking for a two in a row today. A two in a row, and did I get it right also? You you did get it right, I yes. did, all right. Uh-huh. Awesome. Well, did you prepare a trivia question? You're darn right I did, fella. <laughs> He's out for blood now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. The blood's in the water. Here we go. Um, which automaker dominated NASCAR for a time despite not having a V8 engine and... What design element was attributed to this? Are you kidding me? No, that's I'm your, not kidding. That, you. That's your question. It's a two-parter, and it's a. There's no bonus here. No, there's there's no hope here. Is what there's no. I know nothing about NASCAR. Oh uh, well, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. Write that down. I, I mean, uh, questions. I mean, I know everything about NASCAR. Right. Uh, what automaker dominated NASCAR despite not having a V8 engine? So when you say not having a V8 engine, you're talking about in a regular production car? Or on the NASCAR track. They did not run a V8 engine. They ran an inline six. Huh. Wow. And you're you going to have to dust off the cobwebs a little bit, because it was a time ago. It was a while ago. Well, that's kind of what I'm thinking. And, uh, and the design element that goes with it, was that uh, attributed to the engine mechanicals or to the body of the no, car? No, the, to them being able to dominate and compete in NASCAR despite not having a V8. Right. There was a certain des- design element that, that was made in the car that let them... We'll, in, we'll say in the car. We'll, well, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> I mean, I'm just digging here, but right, the car is it, kind of a big thing. It allowed them to be competitive. All right. And so, my guess is, uh, I'm going to say it was Hudson with the straight six in the Hornets. Am I uh, close? He's looking at me stoically. <laughs> we'll find out later, my friend. <laughs> so that would I'm be, done. I'm done showing my poker hand with that you. That would be in the fifties, um, and the design element. Um, I'm going to go on a limb here because I'm kind of lost, but I'm going to say <clears throat> it was the aerodynamic package on the car. I just think the overall shape of the car was a lot slipperier than the other ones on the track at that point. So this could be completely wrong, but that's that's my hypothesis. All right, so you're saying Hudson 
and the aerodynamic package. Correct. Just the, the design of, of the body of the car, which technically, I guess that's not in the car, so I might have excused myself already. But All right, I'm I writing guess, this down. I guess we will see. We will see. All right, buddy, your turn. All right, so we all know how much you like Corvettes. <laughs> and there's just so much trivia about them. Yes, sir. Uh, so in 1957, uh, our friends at Chevrolet came out with a fuel injection system on the Corvette. Mm-hmm. Remember that? I do. What did they call it? Oh, um, I know it was made by <laughs> Rochester. <laughs> Um, did, just, did something heavy just land on you or something over there? Yeah. <laughs> oh. uh, <laughs> uh, it was the, like, wasn't it like the uh, turbo fire fuel injection? Turbo fire. Yeah. Uh, that, as well as being a potential correct answer, sounds like a worthy candidate. It is a worthy candidate. I know they... T- uh, their engines they call like turbo jet like the big blocks like turbo jet 396 or something but that wasn't they weren't fuel injected um you know what's funny to me is is chevrolet put the word turbo on just about everything except a turbo yeah yeah that makes, <laughs> yeah and it took forever to have one i think wasn't the six wasn't there a turbo thrift six cylinder at one point and then the turbo 400 you know and turbo 350 yeah. turbo hydromatic right. transmission and right yeah yeah that's nuts um then you had the Turbo Corvair, which then they didn't even call a Turbo Corvair, did they? Uh, yeah, I don't know what they called that one, but yeah, like a snare. Well, it could be another trivia question. Oh yeah, so write that down. Get get studying. <laughs> All right, yeah, I'm going to say uh, Turbo Fire uh, fuel injection. Turbo. I'm writing it down. Turbo. Would there be a hyphen in there or a dash? Or yeah. Just, yeah. Oh. Well, you know what? You're going to give it to me if I'm right. Dash or not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Turbo dash fire fuel injection. Right on. That has been noted. Dig it. So we will, uh, uh, hopefully this has created enough suspense in their listening audience to uh, to stick around and get the correct right. answers as they are at the end of the episode. They will be stupefied at the end of the show when they get yeah. the answers. Right. Or severely let down, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so you have been busy. You just got back from a run on the Hot Rod Power Tour. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Ran a couple legs of the power tour with uh, my buddy Robert and his Galaxy. We um, went to the uh, Davenport uh, stop and the Champagne stop. And uh, it was probably the hottest day, hottest week of my life. Um, Temperatures were in the mid-90s, pretty humid. It really taxed a lot of cooling systems on on these cool cars, and they were puking their guts up. And, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but luckily Robert's galaxy ran like a top. It never even thought about getting hot. Uh, we had the top down, uh, for the first leg and then realized that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. yeah, even yeah. It's cool, but the sun just, just roasted us. But, um, right. But it was, I mean, it was a great time. Lots of cars, lots of really, I mean, a lot of different things playing out, you know, you saw your rat rod, your, your bagged trucks, uh, a lot of your modern stuff was, was coming out. Uh, you know, you, your stock-looking muscle cars were out there. Um, just just everything under the sun that you can imagine is represented out there. It's, it's, 
such a great time. Yeah. So I, I um, and you shot a whole bunch of cool photos that I we'll put a mm-hmm. link to and and cool if we can we'll share your photo gallery. Absolutely. Uh, it looked like the turnout was ginormous again. That particular event is one that the variety of cars just does not have any limits. True. True. I mean, if you want to find uh, anything. You, if you just look hard enough, you'll find it. I mean, if you want to find a, a you know, a car with twenty six inch wheels on there, you'll probably find it. Yeah, right, right, right. So this year, uh, along those lines, you you had mentioned before that you saw a lot of bag trucks. How's that trend doing? It seems like it's it's being pretty strong. Yeah, it is. I mean, I saw a lot of that stuff, and it looks. I mean, I think it's such a great look personally when when they're, especially when they're parked and they and they drop they drop it all the way down to the ground. I just think it's a really pretty slick look and uh i i didn't expect to see a lot of that to tell you the truth i didn't even really hmm. think about it but when i i just kind of kept seeing these things you know driving from stop to stop you know parked in the in the lots out there you could not go more than probably 10 15 cars and you'd see another one wow and uh, it, yeah and 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 they all they all seem to have a, a they all seem to share a similar design element where it's a it's a lot of patina on the outside. I didn't see any really I didn't really remember seeing any you know show quality uh, mm. paint jobs that mm-hmm. were dropped, but a lot of you know looked looked like he just dragged it out of the out of the junkyard. And um, not to say they were junky looking, but just had a lot of patina on there. And yeah, right, just right. had a weathered look to it. So. Yeah, I think that's the deal. And, and I guess we're probably talking about late 50s through 80s trucks. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of late 50s stuff. I saw some, I saw some uh, late 60s stuff too. Uh, but but the, I think the, the 50s era really dominated that, or is dominating that trend, huh. to tell you the truth. And what's interesting there is that you can still buy trucks fairly inexpensively if you know where to look, especially if it's kind of a beater to start with. Right. And then you spend some money on the chassis and throw a junkyard LS in it and leave the outside alone because that's where all the money goes. Mm-hmm. And, and next thing you know, you got a thing that uh, uh, is stopping traffic and is kind of guilt-free to drive because it's not a purest collectible truck that somebody's going to get mad at you for taking the original, you know, 364 out of it or whatever the heck was in it <laughs> and throwing it right. away. And you can do whatever you want. It's a blank canvas. So that, that is yeah, cool. That is really cool. It's a, it's a good, fun kind of, kind of ride, too, because in all reality, they still retain some usefulness. You know, true. You can, you yeah, can run them on the weekends, and so. But you, you mentioned a good point. It, the variety of stuff that you saw wasn't what you were expecting. What were you expecting to see on that trip? You know, I, I just, I get narrow-minded, and I, I expect to see nothing but, you know, '60s era muscle cars, and that's just what goes on in my head. And then when I see everything else, I'm pleasantly surprised, and it kind of gets my mind thinking, like, oh, there's a whole different world out there based besides what what I'm into. Right? You think? I mean, the, there's more yeah, than yeah, a GTO. About, <laughs> yeah, you know what? There's more than just a GTO out there. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the great things about that event is you get to talk to people and see how they're using these things. Um, mm-hmm. So there's the exposure to different styles and all that stuff is one aspect that's killer. Uh, but the next one is it's put to the test, you know, and it's got to go down the road and make it to the next city. And it's so, yeah. so refreshing to hear that uh, Robert's Galaxy was problem-free on that trip. Because uh, I was following along on Facebook this year. We didn't get a chance to go. 
But I, I could not believe post after post after post of people with electric fan and cooling problems uh, nonstop. Oh, yeah. and, and I know in our shop, when we install electric fans, I'm a proponent of electric fans. I get how they work. They, you know, they were initially done to kind of free up some power, you know, when, when everything became four cylinders in the, in the eighties mm-hmm. and you were expecting your four cylinder 85 horsepower engine to drag the car down the road with air conditioning and cool itself. So they said, well, let's throw an electric fan on it and free up that crank power. And then of course the high performance guys jumped on board and said anything we can save. Well today, you know, I don't think most of those people aren't trying to save the few horsepower that an electric fan mm-hmm. saves. We're just kind of conditioned to say an electric fan is where it's at. Cause you can run right. two of them and you can control them and everything right. else. But I think the biggest failure point is in the wiring of these systems, because there's two, two things that are tricky. One is that they need to be controlled by a relay. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a lot of very cheaply made relays that are failing. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, and and when these relays fail, your fan's done. So the fan might be you know completely operational. Um, right. The next thing is that even when that relay clicks, these fan motors, the bigger they get, and and the duals and everything else, they uh, they take a big hit of power to get them spinning. Which, right. if your connections aren't made properly, it's going to arc. It might loosen the solder. It might pull the connector off the circuit board, and then it's done that way. So right. I really think, and um, Trevor uh, and Tyler, our two two of our technicians, just went to the Holly EFI factory training school recently, and uh, yeah, they came back and brought some insight to that whole thing because the Holly guys are saying don't ever use a mechanical relay again only use solid-state relays. So oh. we're talking the micro-sized, um, you know, Tyco manufacturing and, and right. uh, NOS. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, this week, MSD just came out with a really cool piece. It's a four-bank solid-state uh, relay pack that doesn't huh. doesn't look like a relay. It looks like a piece of, bla- of, of red uh, nylon with some connectors on it. And huh. you just wire your hots and your grounds to it. And now these th- each one of these, I think, will handle a 60-amp load. Um, oh, wow. It's either a 40 or a 60, but there's no mechanical part to break. And all the wiring connections are, you know, screw type or, or good stuff so that you don't have those failures. Oh. So it's good that somebody's identifying that problem because an overheating yeah. problem on Power Tour can ruin your trip. Yes, yes, it can. We had um, in in Davenport, um, Robert's uh, in-laws live there, and a friend of theirs has a house that was right on the route, just down the street from the venue. And so they set up a bunch of chairs and were just hanging out, and right in front of them, two cars just were puking their guts up, cooling all over the street. And they had to shut down, and then we helped them push it into this guy's driveway so they could cool off and put more coolant in there and do what they needed to do to keep going. And I, I think I think they both did have um, electric fans, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, one, was, one was a big block car, one was uh, an LS. Yeah. And, and I was surprised to see that, to tell you the truth. I, I, I didn't really expect to see an ls car overheat like that well those uh, things you gotta remember those engines are modern design and they're made to run hotter 
Yeah, so true. there's several things in play there too. You might think, oh, it's a new engine, and, and if it was, depending on which one, it might have been an aluminum block or a lot of right. other aluminum parts, and you think they're going to mm-hmm. run cooler. But in a in a factory application, you look at a GM truck driving around with a six liter in it, and it's running at two fifteen, two twenty all day long, and it doesn't right. get hot until it's like pushing two forty. And Jeez. people in the old cars freak out about that. And oh, if, yeah. if they run the wrong coolant, their water's boiling long before the engine is hot, you know. Yeah. And so there's that problem. And, of course, the mm-hmm. electric fan thing. I'm looking at the press release I just got from MSD on that relay block. I, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. It's actually four 20-amp continuous relays. So the whole block will provide 80 amps. And then, okay. uh, you know, these things will probably take a, you know, a bigger spike than the 20 when they start. Sure. Sure. Um, and I'm going to guess that at some point they're probably going to come up with some higher uh, um, amp capacity of these things. But it's a neat little deal, uh, and it's just something to consider that uh, don't don't necessarily blame the electric fan, but take a good look at how it's put in. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, I saw a lot of also a lot of LS swapped vehicles mm. uh, out on this power tour. I mean a ton i mean you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't swing a cat around and not hit one for so, so like loud. every other car was uh ls powered yeah it, it, re- it seemed like that i mean everything i looked at i'm like oh ls car oh ls swap oh ls swap i mean not that there's anything wrong with that i mean it's it's really becoming kind of like how the small block back in the 60s was swapped into every car that that typically had a flathead in it and it's the same kind of thing today. It's it's the modern small block. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> it's getting so... I still don't like to use the term easy, but it's getting simpler to install those. Yeah, well, there's a lot of support, a lot of aftermarket support to help you along with that. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, people making uh, proper mounts, engine mounts to do that, and harnesses to help wire it up and all that. And that, I mean... That's that's huge right there. If you get someone that makes an engine mount, someone that makes a wiring harness that's going to let you put an LS in into your Chevelle or or your your GTO or your or your Oldsmobile or your Ford or whatever, I mean that's that's huge. That's a huge expense of time and money avoided just to be able to have a a plug and play kind of a kit like that. Oh yeah, and and there's a number of them out there and and. Um, we, we use a lot of the Holly parts. The guys at Holly identified the, um, potential of the LS swap world a long time ago. And they, they started jumping on that deal. And what I found is that not only do they make the mounts, but it's the front drive system to move the accessories up higher. It's, uh, the oil pans to swap it in properly, the mounts, the Mm -hmm. headers, um, controllers so the holly dominator controller will run the engine and uh, a gm transmission um with their harness and it's all plug and play it'll control fans and all that stuff and my advice there is if you're going to do an ls swap try to stay with one manufacturer of stuff Uh, because if you get brand a engine mounts and brand b headers and and you know other stuff pretty soon your headers are hitting the floor because the mount was designed with a different header in mind and then you're upset. So yeah. there is one where uh, package and brand loyalty kind of matters because somebody already did the math and, you know, let them figure it out. And then it'll, right. it, it'll bolt, you know, basically bolt right in. It's easier. Whenever you see a lot of the LS stuff, and I guess I fly in a lot of circles of, of original and purist cars. Um, mm-hmm. Did we see any uh, people walking by saying, look at this perfectly stock car with the LS and I don't like that? 
Or was it rah, 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 get that LS sucker on the road and rock and roll? Because I think that's probably... I think I heard one guy kind of poo-poo the whole LS swap thing. Um, But generally, I think it was just limited to him. Uh, I didn't hear a lot of disgruntled people. Yeah. Um, I, I mean... I mean, come on. I mean, it's there's there's a million reasons why you would you know swap put an LS in there. I mean, maybe you you want to get it on the road. Maybe you don't have the stock engine. You you don't want to go through the the expense of building a, a proper period correct cast iron engine for your car. And maybe you, the, your circumstances allowed you to do this LS a lot cheaper and a lot easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or, or that's just something that you just wanted to do. Maybe you didn't want the factory engine anymore. Maybe it was, you know, maybe it was a six cylinder or something. Like I need a V eight, and this this was the easiest way to go about it. I mean, there's a hundred reasons why. Yeah, and it's your car, it's your money. I say, do what you want. I mean, plus the fact that it's the power and economy can't be beat. True. You know, oh, you, yeah. you throw in even a basic. Uh, so again, to mention Trevor from our shop, he he's got a '68 C10 truck with. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, a four eight in it, the littlest, mm. you know, uh, Gen three V eight you can buy, and it was a, a takeout motor with a four L sixty transmission, and in a pickup truck, uh, this thing I think it's run fifteen seventies in the quarter, and it gets like really? it's it like eighteen to the gallon, yeah, and uh, because it, it's got a three seventy three gear and this little you know an overdrive and a little four eight, they're giving those engines away. I mean, those <laughs> everybody has overlooked that four eight like crazy, yeah, and and. Uh, you know, there's not much difference between that and a 5.3 or, or even a 6.0. So all the ex- external parts work. You know, you could yeah. you could go to your junkyard and get a $300 4.8, get it in the car and drive it around, save the money and build a 6-liter, you know, or an LSA later on or, you know, some mm-hmm. supercharge right. and mm-hmm. uh, not have to change anything drastic, you know, the supercharge a little bit, you know. but um, sure. And they take turbos and they take power adders the same way so yeah we yeah. do a lot of ls swaps in our shop i got a 69 corvette roadster with an ls3 going in it right now and a six speed that we're working on it's gonna be a killer car that was a non-original 350 four-speed car so the owner okay. didn't have any guilt about yanking that the original motor was long gone <laughs> so it's allowed <laughs> so it's allowed you know and and yeah. I, I use the term guilt and it's so funny to me because how many of us myself included, will take parts off a car and put them on the shelf, you know, just in case, you know, if I ever want to go back, I can. And it's just this guilt excuse. Am I ever going to put that junk back on the car? No, probably not. You know, and, and I'm not in a position to be owning, you know, uh, numbers matching 70 Ram Air 4 Trans Am or something that would be bad if you swap oh, the engine out. Yeah, that um, would be a crime. <laughs> but I got one in the shop right now, man. And it's a uh, I'm kind of torn because it's a killer car. It's a 66 442, and it's in its original owner's family, and these guys have had it since new. Uh, the son, uh, you know, has the car now, and he's in his 60s. And uh, this thing's got just over, I think, just over 100,000 miles on it. Mm-hmm. And they have every original part from this car. But recently, he's like, you know, this car's 45 years old, 50 years old. Good morning. 51 years old now. 51. Uh, stupefying. <laughs> <laughs> and, Amen, uh, brother. Yeah, right. And he's like, you know, that old uh, Olds 400 was a nice engine, but I'm done with it. 
you know, so he himself mm-hmm. has done a full uh, tubular suspension kit on at front and rear. He put a Curry 9-inch rear end in the back. This was from a previous trivia question. You know, that 66 car was a 400 four-speed dual exhaust car. Yeah. Um, so yeah. now it's Thanks got a, a six-speed <laughs> coming out of the factory four-speed hole. And it's got the old 400 under the hood. And he, we went and picked up this car to do an LS3 swap and take the 400 out. Mm-hmm. Outside, the car looks... 100% brand new. It is wow. it, it's the old's equivalent of the Fathom green that you'd see on the you know the, the GM cars a dark forest green. Yeah. Uh, black vinyl top, uh black vinyl interior with a white headliner. It is so cool. Really? Yeah, oh, I've never seen cool. that combo. No doubt. And it's something that before we yank this engine out, I wish their timeline was shifted that I could go take this car to the Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals as it is and say, hey, check this car out, and then quietly turn on and go, yeah, before we ruin it. You know? (laughs) 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 Uh, But he has promised, you know, that he's keeping that Olds 400 and he's not going to throw away the numbers matching block and all that stuff. He's going to, because the engine looks perfect. And it dawns on me, this is the second LS swap we've done in an Oldsmobile recently um to, to where there was absolutely nothing wrong with the oldsmobile driveline it just wasn't mm. wasn't enough you know for this customer uh, i see i see so um we're gonna yank that out and our mission is to uh perform this swap in a manner that does not violate the car we're not cutting the inner fender and you know adding an airbox or anything it's all gonna be a full-on bolt-on undoable application okay. Uh, All right. So that because this is a car that probably should be a proper restoration someday. Yeah, yeah. You don't want you want Oldsmobile people uh, coming outside the shop with you know torches and pitchforks and what did you do? Yeah, again. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all reversible, people. It's, it's well, fine. Yeah, it's and fine. it's a line I got to walk, you know, because here I am. I'm the muscle car of the week guy, you know, talking about a, a numbers matching Hemi Cuda convertible and how these things are, you know to be respected and turn around in the shop, we're ripping them apart, you know, well, not in heavy mm-hmm. convertibles. Right. So we have to do it with a conscience, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but if like, to your point, if the car, if it's driveline was never there or mm-hmm. it was a six cylinder or it was whatever, it is your car. Mm-hmm. Do what you want. Yep. You know, exactly. Exactly. I mean, people are going to have an opinion and, and that's fine. They're entitled to it. But at the end of the day, it's, it's your car. Do what you will. Yeah. Make, make yourself happy. Don't make other people happy at the expense of you being, you know, left feeling wanting for for what you really want. Right. And then, of course, when all that's said and done and you get behind the wheel of one of these cars, especially this one having, uh, you know, the upgraded suspension to go along with it in the six speed. If you've never driven one with a good LS swap in it, um, you're in for a treat because they they run hard and they feel good and... um, they're hot rods. They do. They do it. They do the job. Good. Very cool. Yeah. So tell us, Kevin. Yes. You were at. Uh, you were just at the Street Machine Nationals recently, right? Absolutely. Tell us all about that. That was. Uh, that's a great event. Um, this is the. Uh, you know the the legendary Street Machine Nationals in Duquoin, Illinois. Uh, the sh- the the event has been happening there. I guess the first one was in the in the mid eighties, eighty four, eighty five, and they uh, ran into the uh, late nineties, and then the event went away because it was quite literally just out of control. 
Um, there was right? people doing burnouts all up and down the main street of Decoin. And Decoin's a three thousand or about a six thousand person town now. Oh, so oh boy. back then it was you know thirty five hundred or four thousand, but five to seven thousand cars would descend on Decoin and just thrash this place. I mean, they it was a. <laughs> And I was there. I mean, I was part of the problem. Uh, <laughs> I still got a, a ticket stub from 91 somewhere. Oh, um, boy. So, yeah. The, it, it, and it was it was pro street heaven. You know, between the, the old Hot Rod Super Nationals in, in, uh, in Columbus or, or Youngstown somewhere in Ohio and the, the Street Machine Nats in DuCoin, that was kind of the mecca for pro street. And pro street was... Uh, you know, when I was in high school, thumbing through the magazines, you know, the 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 over the top Coddington cars weren't happening yet, and and uh, rad rides and those guys weren't building cars yet, and and the stuff that was really eye catching were the were the pro street cars that were intended to look like a, a pro stock drag racer that you drive on the street with wild colors and a giant bug catcher and giant tires. You know, so we thought they were cool. The reality is none of these things really run. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, no doubt. They look great. <clears throat> yeah. And in fact, CarCraft did a story on them, I think, in 93 or so, uh, where they were dyno testing and drag racing some of these things. Some of the most popular pro street cars ever. And they were like 15 second cars. You know, they just oh, because they but that's not what they're for. They're they're just right. fun. They're just a giant cartoon right. character. And mm-hmm. So the neat thing is today, a lot of those cars still exist, those from back in the day. So like Matt and Debbie Hay with their pink Thunderbird, the 88 T-Bird, that car was there last weekend. Um, uh, A lot of the the Malibus and Gary Buckles Camaro, and it, it just goes on and on, the cars that are still in existence. So today, DuCoin is not the crazy event out on the street with tire smoke and people going, you know, crazy all weekend. It's far more of a family event, um, and it's a reunion. You know, all the all uh-huh. the people that are in this neck of the woods come out every year and hang out. And it, we had perfect weather. And this year we had our uh, our V8 Speed and Resto shop trailer there. We had three cars on one day uh, on display and our crew came out and we met a ton of nice people. And, um, we actually got a, a, a neat Camaro project, uh, customer out of the, out of the trip, which was very cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. And the, the, it's on the fairgrounds at DuCoin. So there's camping. So we bring our camper and we camp and cook and, and nice. you know, hang out with friends. So it was a tremendous event. We did some live streaming here and there over the weekend. Yeah. And, yeah. um, it was a win, man. It was fun. I never saw the results of Miss Street Machine National. Oh, we posted it. You did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, it, I missed it. I got to go back and look for go it. Go back to I'll the Facebook page, you know, and we did that little bit about because Kelly ended up being a judge for the right. uh, Miss Street Machine Nationals contest. And, uh, and Kelly was also a contestant at one point, right? Yes, in a previous, uh, <laughs> in ba- a previous life, back in the crazy days. <laughs> yeah, I think ni- I think ninety four, and you know. Interestingly, it seems like there are no photographs anywhere of this event before. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what happened. She, she had the internet scrubbed clean. <laughs> she, well, she has the ability to do that. Uh, you know, don't underestimate what she can do. Uh, sure. So I think I was there in 94, as a matter of fact. Um, but, right? but I didn't know her at that point. Uh, but anyway, yes, she was a judge. So um, immediately after the contest, uh, in the comments section of that video, you'll find a picture of the uh, second and first runner-ups, I guess, and, oh, okay. and Miss Street Machine uh, Nationals. So, yeah, that was fun. Dig it. 
Lots yeah. of lots of cool cars. And I, I think it's funny to me um, to use Matt Hay as an example with that Thunderbird. So this is an 88 Thunderbird. It's painted pink. It's got graphics down the sides. It's got a, a twin supercharged uh, Windsor motor sticking out of the hood. Uh, giant tires. It is definition of, of Pro Street. It's got a Ravel model kit that was made out of it. I mean, it, it, you know, oh, nice. everybody's seen this car at some point. Sure. And he lives in Arizona, and he's from Northern Indiana, so he was a Midwest Pro Street guy. But the car's been in Arizona for two decades now, and I was asking him how the West Coast perceives Pro Street because uh-huh. it is not a West Coast thing. Right. And, and, and I remember when I moved to California from Chicago and I would see the cars out there and they were like, yeah, well, you know, what's big back by you? And I would say, oh, we'd have a lot of fun at the Street Machine Nationals. And they're like, yeah, you guys are a bunch of rednecks with these backward cars. <laughs> and uh, what's that all about? You know, because they the West Coast was always into, of course, traditional hot rides and, and, and hot rides right. because you could still sure. find a 32 Ford out there where they all rusted right. away in the Midwest a zillion years ago. So yeah. and the NHRA. um or, or professional drag racing scene, in my opinion, having lived out there, the super popular stuff was the top fuel and the rails and, and pro stock was pretty popular. Um, but I think the, like, if you go to the, the nationals at Pomona for an NHRA race, the big crowd draw is the John forces of the world and the Kenny Bernstein's and all those guys. And then you've got Guys that travel around in the lower classes, of course, pro stock is is important. But I didn't. I never caught on that anybody had the need to replicate a pro stock car and drive it around in Los Angeles. It just ah, it just okay. didn't seem to stick, you know. Um, and in the Midwest, you know, that's what everybody wanted, or a large contingent anyway. Mm-hmm. So there is an event in Arizona in uh, in Phoenix, basically. It's called the Pavilions, and it's a I believe a Wednesday night um, car show at this. Uh, shopping mall called the pavilions mm-hmm. so because they have beautiful weather there all year round uh they'll get three to four hundred cars there every week wow. you know at the pavilions every time they have this thing and matt brought that car to the pavilion show and it was first of all a different location from where the car was kind of built for second of all it was decades after the pro street movement kind of happened right and there's people walking by this thing looking at him going what the heck is this you know <laughs> why why did you build what this did car? you do right what yeah. did you do and he's like they just just did not get it you know and and he's like well you know it's a pro street thing and he said every once in a while somebody would that would recognize the car would like run across the parking lot and screaming up to it oh my gosh it's a thunderbird <laughs> you know and, and everybody else was even more stupefied uh because <laughs> because uh they're like well why is this guy so wound up about this goofy looking thing you know and and out there you know everybody builds cars for fun but uh, the pro street thing is really just do stuff because people say you can't or you shouldn't or let's just mm-hmm. try this and, you know, whatever. So You're right. Uh, so that was kind of interesting to see. Um, and at the same time, at the Street Machine Nationals, you don't see a lot of, like, pro-touring cars. There's not a lot of flat black, modern, blacked-out appearing muscle cars that are on mm-hmm. 20-inch wheels and, you know, rubber band tires and all that stuff because <laughs> right. that's just right. the wrong crowd, you know. So right. It, right. uh, it's interesting to see how it all niched out. There's certainly some of that stuff, um, sure. but the theme of the show is definitely, definitely big tire in the back. It was a good right time. Right on. Yeah, yeah. It was a good, really good time. I want to make it out there one of these days for that. That sounds like a great time. 
Well, we're in the planning stages at, at the moment right now. So a guy came up to us and was looking at a, uh, uh, a grayish 69 Camaro that we just finished up that we had on display. And it's a pretty basic car, meaning that it's a traditional first-gen small block. Mm-hmm. It's, it's got a Holley fuel injection system on it, but it's the one that kind of looks like a carburetor, so it's not right. exotic. It actually has right. a four-speed in it. It's not a six-speed, uh, huh. but it's got a modern, um, those uh, uh, TMI, uh, actually, let me correct myself. It's got the uh, uh, Distinctive Industries slash Scat Pro Car bucket seats. So it's an, an articulated bucket, but skinned in the original 69 Camaro uh, oh, right, comfort right. weave kind of thing. Sure. And then it's got vintage air and an upgraded gauge. But if you looked at it, you'd say that's a 69Z28. I mean, it, it just looks just like one. And this gentleman came up and was looking at the car and asking us questions about, you know, who painted it and who did all the work. And mm-hmm. and he was commenting that he thought it fit really nice. And uh, in all reality, this car, it looks great. I mean, our, our, I have to hand it to our crew. They did a, a really nice job on this car. And it helped kind of define a little bit of some of the standards that we like to maintain when we build a car. Because although this wasn't reinventing the Camaro and over the top with five axis CNC parts or anything. Right. It is very, very clean, and everything on it is detailed, sure. and it's just done to a high standard start to finish. Sure. And one guy came up, and he's like, did you guys build that car? And I said, uh, yeah, and, and our painter, Jeff, was standing there. I said, he painted it, and, and, and John, the metal guy, standing there. And I said, he worked on it. And the guy looked at it, and he goes, there's absolutely no overspray on this thing everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, wow, yeah, overspray. You remember what that is? Um, yeah. Because... When you're building a car, and I'm guilty, you know, but you build a car in your home garage, you paint it in your home garage, you don't necessarily have the ability or resources to take every single piece apart and paint both sides and then reassemble it. So you might Mm -hmm. see overspray in the spare tires or in the tire well. Mm -hmm. And it's not a terrible thing, but it's just not something that we do in our, you know, our restoration shop. So anyway, this gentleman's kind of looking at the car and um, he says he's got a 68 and he wants, uh, he's looking for a shop to finish it. Somebody started the car and, and whatnot. So it's pretty cool, it, and to me, it's kind of a hybrid now because it is—it's a '68 Camaro. It's on a Morrison chassis, so it's a full chassis car. Oh wow! The Morrison chassis uses C6 Corvette suspension up front with a steering rack, their brakes, and uprights, and spindles, and then it, it actually has a Detroit Speed Quadrilink attached to the Morrison chassis in the back, um, huh. which I think they've—they might have even paired up a little bit to start doing that now. Um, Otherwise, the builder decided to go with the Quadrilink in the back. And uh, so it's got coilovers and, and some, uh, you know, occurring, or I guess a Mosier 9-inch in back and some, some good parts. And he's got 18 and 20-inch wheels for it that have already been made. And when you look at this, it, it, it's got a, uh, a, I think it's an almost 600-inch Shafiroff big block under the hood. Oh. So it, it's a it's a real motor, you know. It's like seven hundred and fifty or eight hundred horsepower. Oh, that, that needs a, a full chassis. Holy cow! Right, and a and a six speed. Um, yeah. But what he wants, and the reason why he came to Ducoin is kind of now it's kind of a modern pro street car. So uh, it has what I would call kind of a pro touring element with this Morrison chassis and Corvette suspension and stuff that's designed to go around corners, but. Right. The wheels and tires, the tires that this guy has, they look like Mickey Thompson's, but they're a small 20-inch wheel with a short sidewall. Yeah. So it's a giantly wide tire, and he wants that tucked look, so the whole body looks like it's channeled over the wheels like a pro stock, 
But instead of having a wrinkle wall slicking back, it's going to have uh-huh. a modern handling tire as well. Wow, that's interesting. It is interesting, and it's huh. something I haven't seen many people do. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be a giant trendsetter, but it's going to make people right. go, well, I didn't know you could do that. That's kind of cool. Right. Yeah, that is kind of cool. So that's got to look, that's a 20 inch on an F body. That's got to look huge. Yes. And um, so a 68 Camaro has the arched wheel openings in the back. Right. And typically, you know, when the car was new, the tire mimicked that arch like perfectly. Right. Well, in this sure. case, he actually wants that arch to come down over the top of the tire. Over the top, yeah. And there was a little uh, discussion, depending on time and, and budget, about re-radiusing that rear wheel arch to be bigger so, oh, that, so really? it would still showcase that wheel, but now it's a 20-inch you know, I see. larger huh. diameter thing. Um, but as we started looking at this car, there's... Um, I mean, we have to make a floor. We got to make a firewall. We got to make a trunk floor. We got to make a lot of stuff on this car sure. uh, to make it come to fruition. So that that detail might end up on the cutting room floor, if you will, uh, just right. because of the feasibility of it. But where I was going with this is, uh, if you know, so we're in, he, he brought the car to us. He came from uh, Missouri, a couple hours away, and uh, dropped it off. And and we're kind of preparing our plan and coming to some kind of a. Uh, a scope of the project and and if he decides to say okay go for it and we build the car uh the reveal date is supposed to be the coin of next year really yeah so uh all oh, right on that might be uh, your inspiration to come down you can see us pull the cover off that one yeah for sure all right i'm putting it on my calendar now yeah it's always uh right around the first day of summer okay yeah 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 dig it dig it dig it yeah and the crew's like Everybody loves a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least it's not like one of those... Um, Build in a week? Cra- yeah, yeah, those crazy TV shows. Yeah, I need you to do all this, and um, yeah, I'm going to need it next Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. Oh, boy, I don't know if we can do that. And no, he, boy, the crew will come together. Yeah, no, he's... Uh, the customer seems very realistic about stuff, and, and our team... Uh-huh. The neat thing is everybody is really excited about the possibilities on this car. Um, mm-hmm. I got to hand it to our crew. I mean, these guys, uh, well, and gals, Taylor in the office and Kelly running the place. Mm-hmm. Um, the enthusiasm level is not only is it high, but it's unified, you know, sure. everybody finds something cool about every car, you know, and yeah. it's not a situation where guys are like, Oh man, I got to go to work today and I got to sand on this old car again. You know, it's not that right. at all. It's like, wow, how can we make this thing awesome? You know, so mm-hmm. it's infectious. And when we go through the shop, you know, yeah. we gave this guy a tour when he came to drop off his car. And, and one of the things he noticed, he wanted to walk through the whole shop and see everything, but he was paying just as much attention, if not more to the crew as he was to the work. And wow, uh, we get to the smart. back, and he goes, uh, ah, that's pretty impressive. And I said, uh, yeah, that's a good-looking duster. You know, He said, no, 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 not the car. He said, all your guys are just laser-focused, and they're all working, and, and you're bringing customers through doing a shop tour, but they're not on their phone, and they're not standing there with their jaw open and looking around. Right. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, these guys, they value every customer's dollar for every hour they spend, and they just love doing this stuff. You can't peel them away, you know, from from the work. <laughs> right. And that's, that's uh, killer. It's unusual, I think, in a lot of workplaces. Yeah, that's rare. I mean, that starts that starts at the top, man. I mean, you 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 and Kelly, you set the tone and you create culture. And 
people pick up on that. If you guys were like curmudgeons and like this, uh, (laughs) yeah, sorry about that. That's great. But I mean, I mean that, that would weave itself into the psyche of everyone working for you. And then pretty soon everyone would just be complaining all the time and not happy and doing subpar work. And, you know, and then your customers are unhappy and it's a, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But when you, when you go and start your day with enthusiasm, people pick up on that too. And they're like, well, this is a pretty cool place to work, and and you do cool things for your people, and you just create a good, positive culture there, and great things happen. They they pick up on that, and they do it all, and they start pushing it off on other people as well. So, it's that's a great thing. Well, yeah, and we're we're extremely fortunate, and uh, like I said, today it's a point where, you know, I. When we first started this business, Kelly and I, neither one of us were formally trained managers or business owners or anything. We just kind of wanted to do this. And uh, I was a hyper control freak and uh, Kelly was also. And <laughs> But she was able to put people in play and in positions and kind of create a machine of the building to get it to start working where they called me the seagull manager where I would fly in and crap on somebody and fly out. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Nice. (laughs) Uh, And and it wasn't like an intentional thing, but you know, somebody would be working on something and I would walk in because I, I, my desk is in the office and I'm doing television stuff or doing, you Mm -hmm. know, website stuff. And I would see somebody working on something and I'd approach them and say, Hey, what do you, you know, how's this going? And they'd say, Oh, you know, I'm working on this. And I'd be like, well, did you make sure to do this? And, and don't forget this, you know, almost like being an overbearing parent. And and then I'd walk away and they're like, yeah, I know. But, you know, but today the team we have now has been evolving and we've had people that have been with us for many, many years and we've got some recent additions and the collective uh, ability and attitude of our team is so far beyond what I can do that now I just find myself walking through the shop going, Hey dude, that's awesome. How'd you do that? Right. <laughs> you know? And they're like, right. you got to leave me alone so I can get back to work. <laughs> yeah. I'll show you later. You know? So now yeah, I'm the well, hindrance. I mean, you created, you created an environment for them that they can excel and, and be, you know, self-motivating and do, and know what they need to do and do it. Yeah. And it's, my head is off to them. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm still. I I wouldn't be able to articulate exactly how all this happened. I'm just so glad it did. <laughs> yeah, and uh, God and bless you. We still have issues and challenges like everything else. Sure. But uh, if you right. remember the TV show House, did you ever watch House with Hugh Laurie as the doctor? Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, the yeah. the whole premise of House was that that Doctor House was the super genius, and then he'd have some sub geniuses that were less experienced, but you'd have a team of three or four of them all the time. And they did what's called the differential diagnosis. So Mm -hmm. they would look at the patient and then call Dr. House in and he would say, what do you think it is? And they would say, well, I think it's this. And next guy would say, I would think it's that. And third guy, I think it's this. And then they would team up and come up with an answer. And I am, I am in no way equating myself to any kind of a super genius, but Mm -hmm. um, we apply that strategy on occasion when necessary, when somebody gets stumped rather than have that person bang their head against the wall or go down a path, they know to, to say, Hey guys, let's get a few, a few of the other eyeballs in the room and go around a circle and say, what do you think here? What do you think there? And kind of use the collective knowledge to come up with a quick, 
effective solution. So, and and I'm part of that process occasionally. They they still let me <laughs> play. <laughs> uh, well, that's not nice of them. <laughs> well, and that's fun though, you know, because it's cool when when somebody's like, no, 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 remember this, and it's like, oh yeah, that'll work. Go do it, and it mm-hmm. becomes far less stressful than one guy having to figure it out, and it's much faster right. and better for the customer too. Yeah, and then everybody learns from it too, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's right, that's right on. Yeah, so uh, we're all analyzing this 68 Camaro to see what was done to it and how can we get from A to B as expediently as possible and, and throwing all kinds of ideas against the wall. So it's an exciting part of the project now. Right, um, yeah. And the other great thing is our paint department. Um, yeah, we For a long time, we've been kind of, I don't want to say cocktailing because that's a no-no in the paint world, but we've been evolving our product choices based on what's commercially available to paint cars. Uh, because if you go and wreck your, you know, 2013 Honda or whatever it is, when your Honda was built, it had orange peel texture on the paint and it's designed to look a certain way. So as a collision shop, uh, the mission is to replicate that same type of finish. So you can't tell that that panel was repaired in a customer restoration shop. You don't want that orange peel texture. You know, you want it to be right. smooth and smooth flat. Smooth glass, yeah. And those products are a very small percentage of the uh, overall product line when it comes to the availability paint products out there. You know, the Highline uh, custom kind of stuff isn't always, you know, readily available. So sometimes, you know, in the past... A, a clear, for example, that we're using, the formula changed a little bit so that when it lays out, it actually has more orange peel uh, to, to make uh. less work on the collision shop to make it match. And, and we would have to try and sand that out, you know, and, and spend time. Well, today we're to the point where we know all the good stuff now as far mm-hmm. as the tried and true um, glamour clears, if you will, and things that look really, really sharp right out of the gun. Uh, and the, the funny thing is, it, you might be questioning, you know, well, isn't it obvious when the paint company says, this is our glamour clear, you know, this is the one you want to use. The reality is sometimes what they tell you isn't exactly how it really works. So, Son of a gun. Yeah, you believe that? <laughs> and and it's, Jesus. it's not saying anything negative about the products. It's just you really have to test them and try them and, and spray them out and play with them and push them to their limits and see what they can do and what they won't do. Well, today... Our, our standard uh, formulas for achieving a certain level of surface texture and and we have a process for sanding the cars and all the rest, it is at a very high, uh, high watermark. And this customer with the 68 Camaro came in and we've got a 51 Chevy truck. It's a farm truck. And I've mentioned this thing before. It's got a dump bed on it and everything else. But it's nice. out of paint now. It's been buffed. And it looks dynamite. I mean, it is, it is just... Nice. This would be... A show car at probably 75% or 80% of the shops in the country, this farm truck would be a show-level vehicle, you know? Wow. And, and And we, I still think, I'm not claiming it to be a full-on show car because we didn't intend to go over the top with this thing. I mean, it, it could be nicer, uh-huh. but it is like far nicer than anybody anticipated when they brought it in. <laughs> oh, nice. So That's slick. It is slick. And our team is able to replicate that and, and make it happen. So this, this guy with the 68 comes in and I said, so what are you thinking about, you know, how, how nice do you want this thing? And he's like, well, you guys got anything you, know, you painted recently? And I said, well, we got this old farm truck here. <laughs> and he's like, old farm truck? He's like, I thought that was a yeah. show car. And I'm like, oh, no, oh, it's, wow. uh, this might actually go back to work on the farm. 
Yeah, it's going to have some bales of hay in here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, and he's like, no, no, that's it. Don't do anything nicer than that. I'll be afraid to drive it, you know. So <laughs> that was really cool to be able to say, you know, just whip out an example, you know. Uh-huh. B- backing up a little bit, uh, what, is, what does cocktailing mean? I mean, uh, uh, I, mean I mean, I know what it means, but just for uh, those couple people out there that may not. Yeah, so. well, so <laughs> I'm going to stereotype uh, painters at this point, especially guys who do custom work. Because you, as a painter, you have to mix chemicals together to get your primers mixed and your colors and clears and whatnot. And the, the you have different options of different products along the way, depending on the weather, the temperature, the booth, the humidity, and all that kind of stuff. So to use a clear for an example... Um, Clears are still all solvent-based. They're not water-based. Some colors are water-based today. The the solvent-based clears, if you're painting on a 50-degree day, for whatever reason, it's not recommended, but there is a paint reducer, which is like a thinner, designed to work in that temperature range and allow this clear to still set up in a cold range, mm-hmm. as opposed to if you're in a baking booth or it's super hot outside, 100 degrees, there is a slow-drying reducer so that the paint doesn't dry right on its way out of the gun and still hits the car uh-huh. and flows out. Um, sure. It gives it more time. So you have to make these decisions of which reducer and, and whatnot. Well, there are other chemicals involved um, with that process. And people that cocktail, that we call them, they might take a, a base coat from manufacturer A and a mm-hmm. uh, reducer from manufacturer B and mix them together because they, they might have had a good experience with a certain type of reducer or a certain type of hardener, but they like this the way this kind of color sprays out. So they, okay. they think they're getting the best of both worlds by cocktailing the mixture and going, oh, okay. going off the direction card, because paint is something you never want to intermix brands uh, because it's different chemistries oh. you know it's not all the oh, same right okay it's not like all pouring right. rum in your coke you know <laughs> it's um you could be causing something that is going to lift off the car and not stick or uh, it's going to wrinkle or craze okay. or do all, any number of bad things um all right. so th- there's a stereotype of the you know the mad scientist car painter who's grabbing bottles or whatever and mixing it up to mix a custom color or do something and they always say the same mm-hmm. thing you know trust me i've done this before it's going to look awesome well right. the other no-no with that is if it doesn't work because a lot of times it does a lot of times it comes out just great but sure. uh if it doesn't and you call the paint company and say yeah we sprayed out this beautiful black and it all fell off the side of the car Mm-hmm. the uh, paint companies will say, well, what'd you use? And you say, well, we used your color, but we used this guy's hardener. And they're going to say, well, and you're on your own. You know, right. you misused the product. Right. Um, so it's very important to stay within the, the constraints. Now, what's a little bit less important is sometimes the clears can be interchanged, manufacturer to manufacturer, because they're not necessarily mm-hmm. mixing with the base coat. Um, and they okay. all have... There, there's different sets of chemistry that are kind of similar. I still don't do it, though. I mean, we still stay in the family and, and use all sure. the same. We use the Exalta yeah. brand of a family of products, which is Standox and some Spies Hecker and um, okay. some nice stuff, you know. Uh, but that's what the cocktailing refers to. And, uh, you know, they're, I gotcha. painters have to play with chemistry sets all day, but very few of them are actual chemists. 
Ah, I got you. So they they learn results by what they've done in the past. But as I was alluding to before, the chemistry changes, and it seems like it changes every six months, you know, where it could have been the same part number of of a chemical you're using last year acts totally different this year because of EPA or some kind of regulation or cost or whatever. So So you got to stay up on, on that kind of information. Oh when man! You're dealing with paint, so so if if say you're using like a PPG like clear from six months ago and it's been on your shelf, but now you're using a a, a a paint from PPG that just that you just got, and maybe it's a different formula. Maybe this older clear may not mm-hmm. from a different lot may not mix well with it or do the right thing that you want. Well, you're right. The first thing is the any product that's been sitting on the shelf for six months, you probably don't want to use at all um, because they they change and things happen uh same Uh with body filler uh yeah we have the the we cracked the well we didn't crack it ourselves but the the filler manufacturers that we use uh, provided us with all the codes for the batch numbers so we know when the stuff was made Uh, yeah we've had cans that have come in that might have been in in a warehouse somewhere and we got the last one of whatever and it's eight months old when it arrives in our shop and we'll read the code on it and send it back you know because the problem there is that the filler you can mix it up and spread it and it might be fine but then you mix up a, a current level of freshness and spread it right over it or next to it and when you sand from the one older filler to the new filler they're different hardnesses so you'll never get the panel straight because one is taking off X amount and the other is coming down a little bit further because it's you. softer or harder or whatever. Oh, man. Things you got to know. Heavens to Betsy. Oh, yeah. It's it's crazy. And and the to be up, we're, we're lucky we have some good support from our paint supplier. And then we also have factory re- relationships with, with the manufacturers of the paints also. Mm-hmm. And we get these guys on the phone sometimes and say, you know, what do you think about this or what happened here or, you know, whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to pull information from them generally uh, because it's hard for them to disseminate the new stuff to everybody all the time. You know, right. to be over, you can't expect them to be over your shoulder saying, hey, you don't want to use that because we got a better one or newer one. Right. So we're always kind of right. asking. But um, our painter, Jeff, has logs that he writes. Everything that's shot, mm-hmm. everything, every every day, there's a listing of what the, the material was, what car it was sprayed on, what the conditions were, how much of everything he used, what the mix ratios were. And we got to keep that log. Right on. Yeah. And then on top of that, what we call spray out cards. So if he's going to spray some green today, he sprays a little bit on a card and the rest on the car itself. And then if that thing Uh ever gets um, scratched or it needs a repair, uh, Uh we have the card on file with the actual, with the actual formulation, the formulation, but, but it's, it's more than just the formulation because every body shop can have access to the factory formula. Uh-huh. But there are, um, there's a term for it. I forgot what it's called. I call them kind of plus and minuses. There might be, because of the variance of of who mixed it and the and the scale and whatnot that the stuff was weighed on when it was blended, uh, the tint might be just a hair bluer or a hair purpler or whatever, even on the same I recipe. See. Wow. 
So if you, uh, you ever get bored one day, go to a collision shop and ask to see their spray out cards because they'll pull out like, you know, all the current cars they painted and a a diligent body shop will have spray outs for every job they do. And you'll see a a stack of cards that are all technically the same color and the same formula, but you'll fan them out. They'll all be different, you know, but they'll, Hmm. they'll have what was done on the backside to make it a little bit different so that, you know, when you need to repair something, they can quickly go back to it and go, oh yeah, this... This is supposed to be, you know, Cortez silver, but it's actually cast a little bit to the blue side. So here's how we did that, you know. Boy, the the glimpse we're getting into the world of vehicle restoration. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I like it. what I'm saying, man. The the smarties in our building are what make this happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I just kind of go along for the ride and go, hey, no kidding. Uh, hey, look at that. <laughs> no kidding. No, no way. Yeah, really? Be darned. Yeah, right on. Well, dude, I... um. I watched our latest, uh, your latest, our latest, uh, your latest uh, Muscle Car of the Week uh, episode. Well, you're you're definitely night. in the family, you know. So it's it's yeah. uh, we'll call it ours. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, the that '71 Hemi Cuda convertible, holy cats! Oh, good God, what a car! What a car! And you know, I I, I got to mention something here. This is the first time you've ever mentioned or talked about values. In a muscle car, yes, on muscle car of the week, it is. and I know you typically you would never do that, but this car is probably the only car I think you can get away with that because a Hemi Cuda convert a seventy one Hemi Cuda convertible, you just can't have a conversation about that and not talk about the value of that thing because that thing is like the top dog when it comes to value in the muscle car world. You know what I mean? Without a doubt. And yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that because I did go off on kind of a rant in the middle of that one. Um, <laughs> and the reason for it is I, I love the comments that people leave on the videos and on the website and on Facebook uh, because the more conversation, the better, you know, and it's fun. Yeah. And I value everybody's opinion. We were talking about the LS swamps, you know, and everything before. Mm-hmm. But what I don't, I have opinions too, and I, I try not mm-hmm. to let those color our presentations, but you, you're right. correct. When we're talking about a multi, multi-million dollar muscle car, usually the first, within the first two or three comments, it's something about how it sucks because it's so expensive, or mm-hmm. in this case, the example was, you know, I've heard many people say that these high dollar cars have ruined it for the rest of us and the rich guys are destroying the hobby because they're making, mm-hmm. you know, these cars out of reach. And, um, you know, there is a hundred percent truth to the fact that I will never own a Hemi Cuda convertible. You know, it's just, I don't have it. I'm not going to get it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not there. Mm-hmm. Maybe if I win the lotto, who knows if I'd still buy Maybe. one, you know, who knows? Right. But I don't see that as a giant negative. Um, I see that as a positive that there's enough interest in what we do to put something at that level of value. Yeah, that's a good point. Real good point. I like your the the, the analogy you said about where are all the Pontiac J two thousands out there. These sure as hell aren't on Muscle Car of the Week, fella. I'll tell you that right No. Now. <laughs> no, they're not the uh, primetime Meekum auction seven-figure cars. Well, maybe one, bringing the whole thing full circle, there was a pro street car built by Rick Doberton that was a Pontiac J2000, of all things. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that's the only one that was ever uh, even close to cool. Um, 
So yeah, I was a little bit cautious about going off on that rant uh, because normally it's just here's the car and this is what the car is and anything we know about the car. But that particular car has oftentimes been blamed for the escalation of these values uh, because a gentleman who owned that car in the 80s, I think he bought it for 23 grand in about 85, which was still a lot of money for uh, at that point. Yeah. 85 was, you know, 15-year-old car basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And shortly thereafter, he sold it for 54 grand and wow. nobody had heard of a $54,000 muscle car at that point. Right. And right. I think it might have sold to Otis Chandler with his museum. And people were accusing the seller of, of you know, ripping them off and false, falsely inflating, you know, the value of this car. But the rest of the people went, well, yeah, they, he paid it. So there's the value, yeah. you know. It's, it's worth whatever someone willing to pay for it. And to think, you know, today, all right, so if it sold for 54 grand, 10 times that would be 540 this thing's worth yeah. about 75 times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, brother. You know, almost 100 times worth its high watermark yeah. in the 80s, you know. So, yeah. uh, and again, let the guys who can afford to uh, play in that arena, let them play in it all they want, mm-hmm. you know. And, and they're yeah. going to go up and down and up and down. I don't think they're ever going to go yeah. away. I hope. I don't think so either. Yeah, I hope not. But, I mean... It, it, the fact that, the, the, to your point about people saying that the rich people are ruining, uh, ruin it for everyone else, I, I, I take a little bit of issue with that because there are still tons of cool cars, muscle cars that can be had that are relatively affordable. I mean, you can you can get you can get a sixty a decent driver sixty seven GTO for you know probably twenty grand right if you find the right one. I mean. If 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 that's your thing, that you can that can be had. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No one's talking about million dollar GTOs really or anything like right. that or four four twos. So you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, a sixty nine Trans Am convertible. Yeah, that's an, that's a whole other option, a whole other deal. But but that's kind of that's like almost an elite class. I mean, that 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 very few people can play in that sandbox and let them play in that sandbox. You know, the, there's still a vast number of cars that are available for. You know Joe Lunchbucket that can that he can get so. Joe Lunchbucket waiting for him to Joe come back around. Yeah, no, I agree. And and there's things that people need to consider. Is that two points? Number one, should the pinnacle of anything be low hanging fruit? Right. So sh- no, yeah. should the Mona Lisa be available for purchase at Walmart by anybody? <laughs> right. No, exactly. it shouldn't. It should only be available right. at a high level of value. And if it's not you either maybe change your station in your life and try and achieve that mm-hmm. or accept the fact right. that you can appreciate it, but you don't have to own it or you won't own it. But mm-hmm. if, if all the neatest, you know, uh, uh, you know, if a 59 gold top Les Paul guitar was worth 35 bucks, then n- mm-hmm. none of them would have any value, you know? Right. Yeah. Then it wouldn't really mean anything. Correct. And, and we live in a society where everything's easily replicatable and, and you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's car- cars or appliances. Well, mm-hmm. you cannot make a new 71 Hemi Cuda that was built in 71 that has this lineage that is one of a handful. So the reasons, you know, sure, it's a pile of steel and parts at the end of the day, and plastic and glass, right. whatever. So what it is isn't necessarily worth, you know, 
anything. Right. The, the sum of its parts just don't no. don't don't add up to a lot. But the fact it's what it is exactly, it's a legit thing. You know, it's it's been there. It's it's done that. It's been sought after. It's like the Mona Lisa. You know, the Mona Lisa is worth a piece of whatever it's painted on and and some oil and right. pigment. Right. Nothing. Sure. Um, sure. So so there's there's that, and and I think to your point, it's nice that. There are other versions. Yeah, we'll get over it. You can't have a Hemikuda convertible. But if you scrape your dimes together, you might be able to find uh, a regular old 71 Barracuda Grand Coupe or something somewhere with a mm-hmm. six-cylinder in it and put right. some work into it. And or, or maybe for 35 grand, you might find a 383 car or something. You know, whatever. Right. Exactly. The other point, though, is that if the interest wanes on this stuff, then we're all screwed because... <laughs> right. um, Parts manufacturers, you know, classic industries, for example. So they make reproduction CUDA parts. Are they, and I've talked to these guys about that, you know, they will tell you straight up that if there's still a couple of uh, CUDA convertibles that are unknown, one or two, I think. And if, if oh, yeah, if wow. Mike Cuball Clark goes out and finds one, uh-huh. Even the guys at Classic Industries are going to say, that's not the car you want to put our reproduction parts on. You know, you, you hmm. need to find NOS stuff for that to do it properly. You've got to find original right. 1971 American-made Chrysler parts to restore that car. Right. However, for everybody else, you can't find those parts. And if you like those cars, they're in business to supply parts for those cars. Hmm. But if tomorrow nobody cared anymore about any of these things or GTOs yeah. or whatever, well, then your classic industries and your OPGIs and your year ones of the world would go home. They would just turn off the store and, and that's it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the, uh, you know, three and a half or $5 million Hemi Cuda convertible all of a sudden becomes worth $15,000, well, then all the stuff that you and I think is cool is not going to be available <laughs> at all. And, it, and, right. and that's bad. Yeah. That is you bad. know, and and uh, I get in this conversation with people about uh, about car television shows because you know we obviously mm-hmm. produce VATV, and then a new show will come out, and somebody will say, "Oh, did you see that new show?" You know, and and approach it to me almost like it's competition, and I say, "Great, you know, get the more shows that are out there, it shows our industry is right. healthy, and people like what we do, and that's good." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good for everybody in in this in this game, right? So, yeah, yeah, good for that. You know, we can't restore them all. So if another restoration shop opens down the street, awesome. You know, right. I'm all for it. Plenty of pie out there for everybody. Correct. And let's make more pies. Mm-hmm. Let's get more people interested mm-hmm. in these cars so that there's more. Right. You know, so sure. And that's kind of why I went into that rant because I know, like you said, that that that's the car that's going to be the the trigger point to start those conversations. And before some of the Nelly negatives can jump online and <laughs> start expounding their uh, their their hate, I decided to just cut that one off. Uh, good. So good. No, that was I, I. I liked it. I thought it was nice and concise and, and well and well said. So it's you got your point across and you couldn't have said it better. I didn't want to come off as you know some elitist jerk off right you know, but because <laughs> i am joe Lunchbucket. me too man me too i'm as blue collar as it gets that's right so i'm uh, curious to know about our results of our little trivia questions here all right all right trivia question and i asked kevin which automaker dominated nascar for a time despite not having a v8 engine and 
what design element was attributed to this? And Kevin said the Hudson uh, was the automaker, and it was because of the slippery aerodynamics of the car. Well, you're you're pretty much spot on on that. Oh. Um, it was Hudson. Um, nice. That's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I was, God dang it. I was, I was holding it together. <laughs> I yeah. tell you when you said that. <laughs> like, <laughs> filthy animal. And the design element was, I mean, it it was aerodynamics, but what made it more aerodynamic was the uh, step down design that that Hudson had. It was a unibody, and you and the the floor pans were lower than the frame rails, and it became it pushed less air because it was it had a lower center of gravity, and it handled better, and it had a slippery body. So my, the answer I was looking for was step down design, but it, it, what you said kind of made it is why. Is why it was more aerodynamic was a step down design. So I'll give you a ninety percent credit on hey, that. Hey, right on. Well, I got <laughs> I got a hundred percent of the first part and ninety of the second yeah. one. So hey, that's better than I ever did in school. Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That was one of the first cars that was channeled, if you will, over the frame design yeah. mm-hmm. with the, the unibody. And all right, well, yay me. All right, so yay you. so so my question to you was in 1957, our friends at Chevrolet came out with a, a fuel injection unit on the Corvette. And what was it called? And your guess was uh, turbo fire fuel injection. Mm-hmm. Uh, the correct answer is r- ramjet fuel injection. Ramjet. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> now that you said that, that's so right. Ramjet. Uh, but turbo fire would have been right up the alley. I mean, as far as what they were naming stuff at the time. So I. I yeah, I mean, it was a good guess. It was a great guess. Uh, right, great guess. Not- just not the right guess. No. I'm not even all that upset about it, so that's okay. You shouldn't be upset about it. That's a worthless question. I mean, you know, only the Corvette <laughs> guys really are into the, the Ramjet name, but I, it was a last-minute thing, and I didn't really think of a good one, so. All right. Yeah, well, it's been fun, man. It's been stupefying. It, it, it really was. It was. Mm-hmm. Very thought-provoking mm-hmm. and stupefying. And Very uh, good. Uh, I think I, I get a couple extra. Maybe I'll make up that last ten percent of the trivia question by using stupefying throughout the episode correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, very. Although good, I don't know if I use good. it correctly or not. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess until next time, we got uh, uh, plenty of more fun things to do and see on the v8speedshop.com website, where we restore the cars on VATV and on Muscle Car of the Week and on Facebook and on YouTube and on on the Twitter and on Instagram and on iTunes and on uh, TuneIn Radio and man. Google Play uh, and good old uh, V8Radio.com. So maybe next time we might be able to talk about kind of a fun contest we're working on, uh, which is going to involve connecting the dots on all those media channels um, as well. And, of course, right. TV on television, on Tough TV, on the Action mm-hmm. Channel, and on uh, the Revan Network. So... Good God, can't get away from us. If you don't, no, <laughs> if you don't want They're it. everywhere, yeah. man. They're everywhere. <laughs> All right, my man. I guess we will see you next time uh, on V8 Radio. <laughs> <laughs>